Hello, and welcome back to a very special episode of Impacting the Classroom, the podcast where we talk with educators, policymakers, and researchers about big topics that have an even bigger impact on the education system. I'm your host, Marnetta Larimer. Today, I'm coming at you live from the Interact Now Class Summit. <laughs> welcome, everyone. And I'm joined by our special guest, Alexa Broderick the founder and principal consultant of the Equity Paradigm. Alexa, welcome. <laughs> we are so excited for you to talk to us today. Thank you, Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm looking forward to talking with you and having questions answered from our audience. So as we are talking, please submit your questions to the chat box. We'll keep an eye out and we'll try to answer them as they come up. So Alexa, we have done a lot of work with your organization. Um, why don't you take a moment and tell us more about that work? Yeah, absolutely. So I started the equity paradigm early on in my career as an education nonprofit professional. I had left corporate America to come into the nonprofit sector because like most nonprofit folks, wanted to make the world a better place, wanted to have an impact, wanted to do direct work with communities. But when I got to the nonprofit sector, what I quickly realized was that although the primary individuals who were impacted by the work that we were doing looked like me, most people at the decision-making tables and who held power inside of those institutions did not look like me. And so as it turns out, almost 90% of nonprofit executive directors and CEOs identify as white, even though the overwhelming majority of communities that are impacted by nonprofit work identify as people of color. And so I started to sit in the dissonance of that and start to bring up conversations that I felt like weren't happening in the nonprofit sector enough. I feel like there are many more conversations about that happening now, but years ago, um, that was not the case. And so I started the equity paradigm because I realized that people didn't have the tools to have those conversations. People didn't have the context to have those conversations. And so I, my career had been in learning and development. And so um, the equity paradigm was really designed to help equip people with the language and the tools and the mindsets to give them approaches for creating safe communities to have conversations and then strategies to actually begin to deconstruct the system of racism exactly as it was designed and exactly as it was playing out in the very organizations that were designed to, you know, help address issues of inequity. And so helping organizations kind of like look at the irony of that and sit in the discomfort of that and grow in their approach and in their understanding of even the work they do. Um, so now as uh, an organization, we provide um, learning experiences, strategic consultation, thought partnership, um, and really work hand in hand with our clients to help transform their institutions and the individuals inside of those institutions, uh -huh. when you minded leaders that we need in every sector. I love that. And thank you for that introduction to your work. Um, I do, you know, met you <laughs> through our, your work with Teachstone and it has been such a transformative process. Um, so much learn and you could just see this, this shift around the organization. So you've definitely created a, a wonderful opportunity for us. And so I hope after this, more people take advantage of those services. <laughs> Um, so let's jump right in and talk about why we're here, right? So today we're talking about biases, just like our podcast name insinuates. What is the impact on the classroom? But before we talk about the impact, do you mind level setting us yeah. and defining what we mean when we talk yeah. about bias? 
Absolutely. So when people hear the term implicit bias, historically what we have defined as implicit bias is those automatically evoked mental associations that we have about different social groups. Um, so those things that are beneath the surface of your conscious thinking that you're not explicitly thinking, but even in this conversation, you probably made a set of assumptions about me. I probably made a set of assumptions about you that we didn't even process, right? We were not conscious of. And so when you think about, you know, implicit bias working as your brain's way of quickly making sense of things that your brain doesn't have time to actually process. But when you layer on the fact that we're operating inside of the system of racism, right? So inside of spaces that focus on racial equity that are building um, muscles around applying an anti-racist lens, we really also have to think about implicit bias being a cognitive reflection of systemic racism in the environment that we've all been socialized in. And so in this view, implicit bias is seen as an ongoing set of associations that's based on the inequalities and the stereotypes that are in our environment. And we're all inundated with them constantly. And so there's this constant tug and tug of war with like trying to interrupt your biases, but then being inundated with biases that we're constantly in that cycle. Wonderful. So that's a great definition and kind of frames what our discussion is going to be about, about around bias. Talk about the impact on everyone in the education system, right? Yeah, around. absolutely. Yeah, Marnetta, you know, you and I both talked about being mothers. Um, and so this is as I'm, I, I was doing research and preparing for this space, and I've led a lot of spaces on implicit bias in the past, but to share a little bit about myself, I'm a mom of two boys, incredible Black boys. One of them just turned three last week, <laughs> my oldest son, and then my youngest son is turning one next month. Um, and even though I see them, and they should be seen as you know, innocent, beautiful boys, the system has already placed labels on them. Right. And so I want to give you a couple of statistics about how this plays out as early as early childhood education. So black children account for about 18% of the preschool of, an, of preschool enrollment nationally. And yet black children account for almost 50% of preschool age children receiving one or more suspensions. Now, I'm actually not a proponent of punishment-based discipline in early childhood. That's another conversation for another yeah. time. But the reason why this happens is because Black children are viewed as more mature and less innocent than their white counterparts. And this goes for other children of color as well. And so when we think about the education system, you can think about it on an education policy level. Um, maybe you have a policy that is race neutral, right? If X behavior happens, then this is the consequence, right? Maybe that's the policy of the school. Maybe that's the policy of the state. But then when you think about the teachers, when you think about overwhelmingly, almost 80% of public school teachers identify as white. The overwhelming majority of early childhood education teachers identify as white. When you think about um, stereotypes that we've been inundated with and also a lack of proximity that many teachers have to communities that they don't belong to. And so maybe the only black and brown children that they've ever interacted with on an interpersonal level is in their classroom. Yeah. About all the messaging that they've been inundated with as individuals, they're carrying out this policy. But what happens is um, there's been a lot of studies around there's no discernible difference in the behavior of the children, but children of color are punished more severely. And then these punishments, these suspensions 
follow them through your education. It starts in early childhood education and preschool, and then it follows them. And children are perceptive. When they start being labeled as a bad kid, when they start being sent out into the hallway, you know, punished and put into time out and over and over more than other children, then they start to internalize and believe. And then it, it, it again repeats the cycle. And so it's really pervasive. And when you think about compared to white children, white children represent 40% of preschool enrollment nationwide and only 25% of those suspensions. And so there's so much to be said about the subtle ways in which our sensitivities to children of color and our expectations of children of color are, are disproportionate to what they're even capable of at that age that, you know, as a three-year-old, my son's prefrontal cortex isn't even fully developed yet. And we may hold him to um, a behavior expectation that is unrealistic. And so when he acts in an age-appropriate way, then we say that's a punishable behavior, even though a white child may behave in the exact same way. That's not a punishable behavior. And then again, it tracks when you think about things like the school-to-prison pipeline and all of the factors that contribute. It's just a vicious cycle. It is. When you talked about, and yes, we do have so much in common, you know, you have two young, beautiful black boys and I have two older <laughs> black sons. Right. Yeah. And um, so we have this shared experience and like, I know what's coming, right. You're just starting your journey <laughs> and wow. I know what's coming, but um, scary. Um, it's but scary. it is, you know, we talked about some stereotypes and whatever. I remember when my oldest son was in high school and he decided he was, he wanted to get dreads. And I'm just like, Oh, I know what's going to happen <laughs> when yeah. you do that. Yeah. Right. But it's his journey. And so, yes. but it does, it's just, and it's been very hard you know, and he's learning through it or whatever. But when you were talking about um, students of, you know, color, you know, yeah. being punitized more often than yeah. their counterparts, not only do they internalize it, but it's kind of, it kind of per perpetuates, you know, for people, you know, non-colored people that <laughs> yes. those, you know, yeah. black children or children of color, right. you know, are Absolutely. bad right there. Yeah. Um, so it, it just, is a cycle that's never yeah. in and it, it, it lays a layer of yeah. bias into there. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and the thing is, no one is immune to bias. So even as, I mean, tracing back to my own upbringing, right? Like, obviously I've been black my whole life, but I went to public schools and elementary school and I saw this, what I just shared this statistics talk right out. I went to a school that was like 60% black, 40% white and overwhelmingly, who got sent out in the hallway, who got sent to the principal's office was primarily black boys that I saw. And then I remember it's like coupled with then like internalized racism, right? So I remember black students that I was in class with being like, you talk white, you wanna be a white girl, you're an Oreo, you know, black on the outside, but white on the inside. And so as an eight-year-old child, I'm trying to make sense of, well, is it better to be white? Is it better to speak this way, to act this way? Is being good, being more like white kids? And again, like that, that's a heartbreaking train of thought for a young child to associate with her own racial group, negative stereotypes that are fueled by the vicious cycle that we've been talking about. And so when you think about like, I'm thinking about this on a policy level, but also like the social emotional level and the identity development of young children. And so as a mom of boys, one of the things that my husband and I do with our boys every single day um, is we say and read affirmations to them. Yes. Brilliant. I am 
important. I am loved. I am capable. I am special. I am whatever it is so that the world is going to tell you that you're these other things. I know that. Unfortunately, as much as I wish I could protect him from being stereotyped, from being on the receiving end of someone's implicit biases, I know that I probably won't be able to protect him. And that breaks my heart. But, right, I think that one of the things that we're trying to do is create in him an inner voice that is so strong, that knows like who he is regardless uh, of what's happening in his environment. And so I truly believe, and I know I'm jumping ahead here in terms of like, how do we fight bias? But I think it's both like the people who are impacted negatively by others' implicit biases have work to do. Yeah. And the people who obviously are carrying out implicit bias in ways that are leading to these disparities and these pervasive gaps in education. Yeah, um, I love that statement and how you framed that. So as you stated, clearly we do have work to do, whether we're black or white, whether we're a classroom teacher or making policies that impact a statewide system, but where do we start? So I read a quote from, you may have heard it, from Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, and it says, we absorb bias in the same way we breathe in smog, involuntarily and usually without any awareness of it. Like that was so powerful for me, right? Like because it's literally that easy, right? Like you said, no thinking, it just, it just happens. And then I was thinking about, you know, as we were talking to that famous doll tests, um, right? With Dr. Kenneth and Mamie Clark. Yeah. Yeah. With the children, they were like three to seven and just as you stated, as young as toddlers, what they learned about themselves and what was good and what was bad, what was desired and what was not desirable. And just sad, still heartbreaking to to this day, right? So if a lot of our biases are internalized, because you mentioned that briefly, what can we do that will make a difference? Oh, such a good question. And it's such a loaded question. I'll break it down into a couple of components. The first thing is that we all have to be willing to do the self-work and to call ourselves in. So I am a racial equity consultant and I feel like, you know, our spaces can be very therapeutic for folks. Um, It's very similar train of thinking in terms of like naming the things and investigating how you have become the person that you are. And so one of the first things that we do when we teach on implicit biases and when we support leaders of organizations and of institutions on implicit bias is go back to your socialization and begin to challenge, right? Begin to slow down your thinking and begin to slow down your processing and be able to pinpoint, this is where I learned that. What did people tell you about people who look like you, about people who didn't look like you? What did you learn explicitly? What did you learn implicitly from observation? The second thing is to call all of the systems and institutions that you interact with in in any given environment into question. So overwhelmingly, who shapes our television programming, the commercials that we see, um, the movies that our kids are watching, the books that our kids are reading, the curriculum that our kids are learning, overwhelmingly who shapes that does not reflect communities that are disproportionately impacted by biased communities of color, right? And marginalized people. So as an educator or someone who's in the education space, being very intentional about diversifying as much as possible what is influencing your students and what is influencing you. 
decentering what has been traditionally centered as the norm, because that norm is going to influence what you deem as abnormal, what you deem as incorrect. This is what's correct, that's incorrect. But what happens when you center Black, Indigenous, and people of color ways of being, when you center books and perspectives and research and whatnot that are centered in on the lived experiences of people who have been marginalized, of people who have not had a voice, and you saturate yourself in that, the way that we have been saturated inside of the system of white supremacy. Um, so that's the second thing. And then I think the third thing that I'll say is to, um, and this especially goes for white people and people who carry power, look around your friend circle, look around who you spend time with. Over 65% of white people in a study recently primarily associate with people who are white, right? Almost exclusively. Who are your neighbors? Who do you spend time with? Who do you go to happy hour with? Who do you talk to? Who is in your social network? If you do some inventory on your friend group and who is influencing you, oftentimes we get into this echo chamber of um, socialization that is just reinforcing the same biases over and over and over again. And so building authentic relationships with people across lines of difference, making it an, an intentional focus to build relationships with people who are different from you, who have different backgrounds, who can challenge your thinking. Um, and actually, um, there's a term, you know, in the social sciences um, that's called um, counter-stereotypic imaging. So process of challenging a negative stereotypes of validity by inundating yourself with positive images of that group. So unconsciously or consciously, many of us have been inundated with negative messages about black and brown people. It's why I don't watch the local news. You turn on local news, mugshot here, community of color here, this negative thing here, inundated with. And even though white people are doing those crimes and doing those things at the same rate, if not higher than people of color, all we see on the local news is people of color. And so if I'm not pausing and interrupting that and saying, mm, I'm actually going to replace those negative stereotypic images of black and brown people with positive ones. I'm going to see images of black and brown people smiling, enjoying their life, living with joy, doing what they are doing, and not just getting these negative stereotypic images. Over time, you can start to reroute the quick associations that your brain makes and start to mitigate the impact of biases. So those would be the three things that I would say. And I also want to say, these are not quick fixes. Right? There are no quick fixes. This is lifelong work. This is daily, minute by minute work. Um, I, we tell our clients all the time, when you're about to sit down with someone to have a performance conversation, when you're about to lead a meeting, when you're about to have a feedback conversation, when you're about to do anything with your students, pause, call into question, what assumptions am I making? What preferences am I bringing into this? Um, interaction, how am I being influenced, who is influencing me, and making it a practice to ask yourself those questions explicitly and then determine what shifts that you need to make in the moment. I love that. I, it has to be intentional, right? Yes. With, with yes. purpose. Um, lots of things came up that I was thinking, I didn't want to interrupt you. <laughs> you were going, I was like, mm, I need mm-hmm. all that train of thought to finish. I actually, before I do this, I'm going to, we have a question in the chat. Anyone have recommendations for books? TV shows, apps that do a good job of showing different perspectives. I'm trying to be more mindful of what content I give my white three-year-old son so he sees more representation. And it kind of piggybacks on what I was going to ask. So let's start with that question and then I'll follow up with what I was going to ask. That's such a good question. Um, And it's so funny because I'm a mom of a three-year-old, but I'm one of those moms that doesn't do any screen time. So I cannot tell you even what is right now and what cartoons or shows or educational programming to recommend. I will say that 
my niece is a big Daniel Tiger fan. And even though the characters are not, they're not human beings, I don't think. I think they're all animals, maybe. They're animals. <laughs> the messaging of the story, there's a lot on differences, on um, understanding um, people who are different from you and whatnot. And so I think it's like, I think it's connected to Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which is probably more generationally appropriate that we grew up with. Um, but Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, I would definitely recommend. As far as books, I mean, I would say that for my boys, I would say 90% of the books in our home reflect Black characters as the norm. And they're not, um, I think when I grew up, when I read books about Black people or Black kids, it was like in the context of civil rights or in the right. context of Black history. No, 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 no. Just people of color being people of color, living their lives, right? happen to be a person of color. Not, this book is talking about Blackness. No, this book is just about a boy who happens to be Black. Um, and so there's a um, bookstore called Liberation Station, and they uh, have an Instagram handle. I think it's called Liberation Station, and they constantly are putting book recommendations of all age ranges um, that depict children of all different backgrounds, families of all different compositions that you can check out. Um, I love their Instagram handle and things that they represent there. And then the last thing that I would say is beyond books, TV shows, and apps, um, I know that we have different ways that in which we're engaging in the world and this, these COVID times that we're living in and how people are getting out and about, but being intentional about going to diverse, diverse spaces to play, right? If you know that your neighborhood is all white and you only go to the park and you're yeah neighborhood and your kid only ever sees white kids or if the schools in your neighborhood are all white right socializing your children in other environments that reflect other cultures where maybe your son is the minority in that space and gets that lived experience and that's normal for him as a three-year-old he grows up being like oh I grew up with all sorts of people sometimes I was hanging out with white people sometimes I was hanging out with people that were different than me and that becomes normal if you send your children to music lessons or to any sort of extracurricular are there black teachers black and brown leaders of these spaces that can influence your child so I think it definitely comes down to again what they're watching and what they're absorbing in the home but also who they are interacting with in the home going back to that counter stereotypic um, imaging when they start to develop real relationships with people who are different from them that are positive, that are nourishing, um, it demystifies these differences and it reinforces the messages that I'm sure you're trying to get across through the books and the apps. Wonderful. I agree with you. I think it's it's a mixture of both, right? So at home, you know, I diversified, you know, we're a Black family, but they were able to see different cultures in the literature, in the toys, in the, right, um, the experiences. They saw me actively interacting with different people, right? So it was a, a norm. Um, so it's not just putting them in those spaces. Your behaviors are also mirroring those experiences. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Thank you for saying that because children do what they see, right? They do what they see. And so Marnetta, you said it perfectly. If your children only see you socializing with people that look like you, if they only see you doing certain things, um, that's what they're going to mirror. And, and so, yeah, that is just like such, such a great point. I think as a parent, as parents, um, we have an additional responsibility because we are influencing the next generation's biases. We are influencing their socialization. We are influencing what they are coming to understand as normal behavior of what they're coming to understand as safe behavior of what they're coming to understand. We are influencing all of that. 
And so I think especially parents of young children, be very cognizant of, you know, who you're interacting with, what they see you doing, what they hear you saying, because that's what they're going to think to do the same. Most definitely. And I mean, since these behaviors start really young, you know, if you have children that are going through childcare facilities, you know, look into those facilities. Are they able to have caregivers that are not (laughs) their race, right? So that they have that experience as well. Um, So many things that we could do in that space. Um, One of the um, participants, one of the attendees said that she created a black library in her home. I don't know how to expand on that because I don't know you know, if this person is a person that is, you know, a, a not a black person, <laughs> but that is a great idea as well, even in our home. Yeah. So one of the things I was going to ask you as we were talking about this, you know, was how to start those convos, right? With people. So if I'm a, a person who is not marginalized? How do I, you know, build my, I have these friends, but how do I start those conversations to build those relationships and not make it weird and place a burden? (laughs) Yeah. I think that like, I'm a big believer in, you know, authentic relationship building. And so I think asking people and holding space for people to share, tell me about how you grew up, right? Like, tell me about what you know, you enjoy doing in your home, what you were exposed to, um, what some of your favorite things were growing up. I think, um, and this is why, I mean, I think therapists often tell you to go back to your childhood, but I think even in relationships with people, like you can understand a lot about a person by um, listening to their upbringing, listening to what they were exposed to, what their, what the values of their home were and what their values um, are now. I think having those sorts of intentional conversations and then sharing from your perspective as well. I think that we really need to normalize building relationships beneath the surface, moving, how are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you? No, how are you really? Um, I think that we need to move beyond um, only reaching out to your colleagues of color when a national crisis happens and Maine is a hashtag that there's a lot happening in the Asian American and Pacific Islander community right now and there's a lot of rallying around in solidarity in that community but what does it look like to actively prioritize getting to know your Asian American colleagues on a daily basis to frequent you know again shops and um, spaces and classes and whatnot that are led by communities that you don't belong to Um, Because again, Marna, you and I identify as Black women, but I do, it's my responsibility to teach my kids about cultures that we don't belong to as well. We should have books in our home that reflect Indigenous children and that reflect Latinx children, that that reflect children with disabilities and that reflect, you know, it is on all of us, but especially groups who hold power to, to initiate these conversations. And so I think that as you build trust, as you build trust with people, asking people to share and then sharing from your perspective as well. Um, and then figuring out how you can um, amplify your understanding in spaces of power that you may be proximate to. Um, I can tell you for certain that like, um, you know, I was in an interaction once at work um, where it was a beautiful moment where we were having a really hard conversation. and. Um, at the time there was a white male who was the executive director and then there was a black woman and a white woman and me and we were all in this space and a black woman spoke up and got really emotional about something that was shared um, in the conversation and um, the executive director kind of shut her down a little bit and was like you know whoa 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 and the white woman who was sitting next to this black woman interrupted 
that interaction and was like, hey, I just want to say, I got emotional a minute ago and you didn't say anything to me. You let me, you, you let me feel my feelings and say it how I wanted to. And I observed you tone policing her a little bit and getting a little bit uncomfortable with her emotion. So that white woman as an ally in that moment, using the power that she had as a white woman in that moment to her peer was able to name it, interrupt the interaction and reroute it. And it was such a beautiful moment because I think, again, when you hold power in your identity and there's an opportunity for you to say something and not be a bystander, do just that. Say what you see. Acknowledge the privilege that you have. That's the same thing I would say. Acknowledge the privilege that you have that you as a white person have the privilege to be able to express yourself freely without anyone associating something negative about you to those feelings or, or, or to whatever it is that you're saying. And so when you notice that a bias may be playing out, that the same is not true, and we know the same is not true for your colleagues of color, for your peers of color, then use the privilege in your identity to name that and make it a teachable opportunity. And I think the last thing I'll say is that there are a lot of conversations that actually need to happen behind closed doors. Yeah. So it's thing to have these moments in like, you know, at work, in the classroom, in a new friendship. But what are the conversations that you're having inside of your home, right? What are the conversations that you're having with your close loved ones when you hear problematic things that a family member says, when you observe a bias playing out inside of your home and no one's there to see it, right? Do you see it? Are you taking the time to put a flashlight on it and to say, oh, I'm seeing that play out now. But again, it requires day-to-day work and it requires building your muscle that you're going to say the wrong thing sometimes. Your impact may not match your intent. You may offend, but it is a learning process and you have to be willing to get messy, get uncomfortable, make mistakes and lean into the process of starting to unlearn these behaviors and mindsets. I love that. I love all the things you're saying. I'm going to keep saying just love. <laughs> like It's a great conversation. When you were talking about building that muscle around, you know, what you're doing in your home, right? When nobody's looking, right? And you're really leaning intentionally into shaping those behaviors. Um, I think that's really powerful, right? Because that's when hab- habits get built by repetition, right? Yes, so not just what happened at work, but that work that I'm doing at home, you know, in, on the bus, right? Like all of those interactions help to make us stronger and build that uh, awareness and ability yeah. to name it, right? Like, because, you know, interrupts, interrupt the yeah. interaction, like all of those things. Yeah. So it's not something that's just going to happen on the spot. And if you're just doing it once in a yeah. while, when people are looking, so you can say, Hey, I'm yeah. Um, yeah. it's not near as effective and it's going to take yeah. you longer, you know, so it's already a long process, even with it's the day-to-day work. <laughs> so if you're only going to do it once, once a month or, you know, once every yeah. month, that's, that's quite a while. Um, take we, two words away. I'll just say this one thing, notice and interrupt, right? Like that's the call to action. Notice yourself, notice your environment, notice your thoughts, notice your assumptions, notice your beliefs. Notice your discomfort, notice your comfort, notice yourself, notice everything that you're doing, like make the unconscious conscious, make yourself so conscious of yourself. You feel like you're yelling at yourself that you notice. I I tensed up a little bit when we drove past that neighborhood. My heart started racing a little bit when I entered its interaction with this person. I felt more comfortable having this conversation with my colleague who has the same racial identity as me than with this colleague who doesn't, right? And then interrupt. I notice this, how am I going to choose to pivot? 
How am I gonna choose to do things differently? Because in any given moment, we have the opportunity to perpetuate or interrupt. I'm either gonna perpetuate this assumption, this bias, give it power, or I'm going to unplug it, diminish its power and choose to do something else. I love that you said that because that was going to be my next thing because we were talking about internalized bias for a moment and I was going to ask what for a person who's suffering with that right like how can you get yourself out of that and kind of give the power back to yourself right yes yes absolutely and Renata it's something that I'm learning like as I teach my son because something I believe deeply in again as a mom of black boys I'm like my sons will know who they are They will know that they are powerful. They will know that they are capable. They will know that no matter what anyone tries to say about them, that inner voice is so powerful. I guess, unfortunately for so many of us, black and brown people, we were socialized to almost believe that the way to get ahead is to take on the characteristics of white people. Absolutely. For a second and vulnerable that in order to get that job, to go to that interview, straighten that hair, tighten up that language, speak in this way we've learned and accepted code switching and making ourselves smaller and taking up less space and doing things in ways that are not authentic to us. And I truly believe that it's a both and. So as people of color, we have to be able to name that and be like, you know what? That's actually internalized oppression at play. And I don't want to normalize that. I don't want to normalize internalized oppression for my kids. I want to be able to say, this is why I've done this. um, And it has benefited me becoming proficient, being palatable to white people has benefited me in my life, in my education, in my business. And I have a responsibility to unlearn some things and to see dissonance of that. And my white counterparts have the responsibility as people with the most social and institutional power to create the conditions for me to lean into my authenticity. That I can only do it if the conditions are created and I'm not going to be penalized for it and judged for it and shamed for it. And so that's why so many people of color are operating in fear of losing their job, fear of not getting that job, fear of not being able to be invited to that table again because you were too this or too that. And so it is a book in that white people have internalized racial superiority where they have to break down the internalized beliefs and assumptions about people of color, the internalized unconscious beliefs that the way white people do things is the right way or the normal way. And so there's work to be done there. And there's work to be done with people of color, breaking down our internalization of those white norms as well. And there's (laughs) collectively in coalition with one another, in community with one another, which is what we do with the equity paradigm to create the conditions for those like in internal racial conversations to happen and those cross-racial conversations to happen so that we can collectively build a strategy and start to recreate systems and policies and norms where everyone can bring their whole self, where everyone experiences a sense of belonging and empowerment and safety and liberation. I love it. When you, when you said earlier that, you know, I, I used to get teased a lot for talking white and so as I was learning more about myself, I would say, oh my goodness, I didn't know you could talk a color. Red's my favorite color. How do you talk red? Right. right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and people would just be set back from that. And I'm just like, yeah. what you said was ignorant. Absolutely. Absolutely. That we have to stop attaching color and race to behaviors that I'm Alexa. My behaviors are Alexa. And yeah. that comment is a function of our conditioning inside of the system of racism that we're like, oh, People of color are supposed to talk like this. And if you don't, then you're trying to be this. Hmm? Right. right. And so we have to interrupt that conditioning inside of communities of color and in white communities. And again, work in coalition together to hold ourselves accountable for doing that work. 
Wonderful. Okay, audience, um, we have about 10 minutes left. So if you have any questions for us, go ahead and roll this out. And while I get those questions in the chat, I have one more question for Miss Alexa. Are you ready? <laughs> do you have any suggestions for what to do when you see others being biased? And you talked about this some, yeah. um, some, yeah. but some more actionable steps and, or when you notice a policy that inadvertently creates inequities. Yeah. Okay. So I will give a perfect example of what I'm doing right now. So I'm not going to name the institution because I don't want to put anyone out there, but there is an institution right now that is hiring for a um, you know, associate dean of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And in their description of what they're looking for, they said um, that a law degree is required for the role. I was talking to one of my friends who's an attorney, and I was like, I believe that about 2% of Black women or, or of lawyers are Black women, right? 2%. So thinking about a role like this, where it's like, you've automatically like shrunken your pool drastically by making it a requirement that you hold this specific degree because you haven't thought about who even has access to that level of education, who has access to the resources to be able to X, Y, and Z, right? All of this traces back to systemic racism. And so I'm writing a letter to that institution right now to amplify this issue and to push them to consider, to broaden their description of the minimum requirements for the role and we'll see what happens after that point, right? So on an institutional level, like there's always an opportunity to just take the time when you notice something, do something about it. I looked up who's the hiring manager. I looked up, you know what I mean? I did a little bit of research myself. And I said, hey, I noticed this. Did you know these statistics? Did you know that you may be unintentionally creating a barrier to this position by doing X um, and that your position may unintentionally favor white males who disproportionately make up people who hold that specific degree, even though you're looking for somebody who, you know, to lead your diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. And so it's, the irony is palpable. So that's one thing. On an individual and interpersonal level, I think the example that I shared earlier in the workplace is spot on. And I share that story often because it is so necessary for white people to know that you have to be allies. That the only way that there has been no social justice movement that has ever been successful without working in partnerships with people who already hold power in that identity. So when we think about racial identity, white people hold the power. When we think about sexual orientation, heterosexual people hold the power. When we think about socioeconomic status, people in the middle class or higher hold the power, right? And so when you think about all these intersecting identities, where do you hold power in your identity? Who can you create space for? So in the nonprofit sector, I may be sitting at the table as a Black woman, but I'm a Black woman with advanced degrees. There are other marginalized women who don't have the access and power that I have, whose voices may not be represented in that space. And so how am I pausing? And hmm, what assumptions are we making about this group that's not here? How do we actually work in partnership with the group that is not here before making a decision? How do we not make decisions for groups and actually make decisions in partnership with groups, in collaboration? with groups that are not represented here. So again, going back to noticing and interrupting, notice whose voice is not there. Who doesn't get to represent a community? And how do you take the steps of somebody with power in a position to be able to interrupt moving forward anyway and pausing and identifying how can we ensure that this voice is implemented? Wonderful stuff. So I, I think I wanna add a follow-up question. So for a, a BIPOC, person, right? A marginalized group. How do you advocate for yourself without 
worrying about being penalized, right? <laughs> and it's sad because sometimes it is unsafe. And I just want to name that, like, it is an unfair burden that people of color, that Black, Indigenous people of color are up against to have to advocate for themselves. And so I'm actually a big proponent of putting the work on people with power. And I'm going to keep saying that, that no, it's not my responsibility to have to name it for myself. I shouldn't have to do that. So when I do have colleagues or counterparts who hold power in their identities, that is their work to do. I have my own internalized healing work that I need to do, sense-making work that I need to do, rerouting of biases that I need to do with communities that I don't belong to. But when you think about holding power in an institution, I think that it is, it is the responsibility of people in power to interrupt these systemic barriers and these um, you know, the conditions that have been created to fuel and perpetuate these implicit biases. Now, what I will say is, and what I did do a lot before I became a racial equity consultant was advocate for your organization to do learning like around this. Maybe you don't have to be the one to say it, but hire a professional who can do it. So I'm a woman who I don't feel like I can do that in my own context, but I will do that on behalf of an organization that is paying me for my labor. <laughs> conversation as a Black woman being paid for the emotional labor that it takes to teach people about racism, to teach people about bias, to teach people about these things that are very heavy, very emotional, very complex. And so people of color, you can advocate for your organization to bring in professionals, bring in people who can help your organization have these conversations in a manner that makes you feel safe, that creates the conditions for you to be able to speak your truth in safety, because that is what you deserve. I love it. And I really wanted to frame that, uh, that question. You said exactly what I was hoping that you would say. What people need to hear is not your responsibility, right? Because <laughs> um, sometimes we just feel burdened in that. And so I love that you reinforced and stated that so people understand, you know, that it's, it's not. It's the people who are in power and that hold the power that have that responsibility to make sure that those inequities are addressed. Um, Verlinda would like to know, how do we help parents? Ooh, I mean, parents, we have to help ourselves. We have to take personal responsibility. I know that one of my core values as a parent is ensuring that my kids have exposure to people who look like them and people who do not look like them. That is one of the core values that drives how my husband and I parent our kids. It drives our choices. It drives where we live. It drives the activities that we do, where we go, where we spend our time, what we allow our kids to consume. And so I think the first step is taking personal responsibility for the role that you have in helping shape your child's understanding of who they are, who they are in the context of the world, and who others are. The second thing is, I think that, you know, there are a lot of parents. I've worked with a number of preschools, um, elementary schools, et cetera, who the parent-teacher organizations have gotten together and have hired external consultants to come in and do work to ensure that they're, the people who are teaching their children have done anti-racism work, anti-bias work, and are continuing to do so, and that there are policies in place to ensure that biased behavior and biased policies do not disproportionately impact kids of color. Um, and so 
doing the work on both an individual and interpersonal level, but also an institutional level. When you think about the schools that your kids are going to, how are you taking ownership and responsibility over ensuring the education educators in that building and the policies that guide decisions that are made in that building are yielding equitable outcomes and experiences and empowering experiences, especially for kids of color. Um, and then the third thing that I would say um, for parents is get out there on Google. And I live in Durham, North Carolina, and I found that there's like an anti-racist parents coalition group on Facebook, but I just there and Googled anti-racist parenting near me. Boom, groups come up. So get out there on Google. And if this is something that is important to you, which it should be, every single parent, um, this is your responsibility. Get out there and Google and see what groups are getting together. What sorts of events are they doing? What program are they doing? What nonprofits are in the area that are doing this work? There are so many organizations, but you have to get out there and do the work and find them and then figure out how to get tapped in. Wonderful. So for Linda followed up, some parents don't have that knowledge. How do we share that with them to where it doesn't appear to be telling them how to raise their child? Because, you know, we get sensitive. We do get sensitive. It's like, this is my child and it's best for them. I can completely understand. I mean, I think that like exposure is key. Um, and so if you are a white parent on this call and you have not read the books, White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo or Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria by Beverly Daniel Tatum, who Marinetta referenced earlier, I would start there. Start with those two books to start to lay the foundation. I think that parents, like we're human beings first, like before we're parents and we have to take ownership over our own learning. So I don't think that anyone wants to be told how to raise their kids or what to do. But I think when you get exposed yourself, when you get influenced by something, right? Then it shows up in your parenting. It shows up um, in how you talk to your kids and what you teach your kids about what's important to you to impart upon your children. And so I encourage you if you're, somebody that doesn't have like a baseline understanding of um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, anti-racism, et cetera, to read those two books, I would say are two great starting points. I think those are uh, great resources right there. Yes. <laughs> um, I will say that, you know, Teach Stone provided um, white fragility, you know, to the organization. And there was a like great feedback around and great discussions around. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. And I think that, you know, people have mixed feelings about like Robin D'Angelo and like white people in anti-racism work, like white people profiting from anti-racism work. And my perspective is like, there are things that white people can say to other white people that I can't say, or that will land differently. I recognize that. So it's like, I truly believe in white people doing the work um, what in ways that feel accessible to you and relatable to you. And so sometimes that means like, sitting in and getting context from somebody who shares a lived racial experience that you have and there's nothing wrong with that and prioritize learning from people of color as well um so don't isolate don't just read robin d'angelo that's why i gave you both Beverly <laughs> a black woman um but then read perspectives from people who again identify as indigenous who identify as asian american pacific islander who identify as lgbtq diversify the content but start in a place that feels accessible to you and where you need to be and go from there. Wonderful. Thank you so much. This has been a great discussion around bias, both internalized and implicit bias. You provided some great resources and support around how to be an ally, how to um, advocate for BIPOC individuals and marginalized students. Um, 
I, I feel like this is a discussion that could happen over and over again, <laughs> over yes. and over and over again. Yes. I mean, we can always be deeper and get more. It's a never ending um, yes. topic that needs attention. Um, you are at the, the equityparadigm.com. So if they want to know more about your work, but yes. also tap in to this wonderful, you know, opportunity to have some one-on-one, do some deep yes. dive into your organization. And if you don't know where to go or where to start, um, yeah. reach out and yes, sure. <laughs> get a hold of Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you so much, Marnetta. You're welcome, Alexa. Thank you so much for joining us. This was amazing. I knew it was going to be amazing when we had our first call <laughs> and I was just like, oh my gosh, we should have recorded that. <laughs> no, I wish we were sitting down having coffee together and just like, continuing the conversation, but thank you so much for having me. And y'all, thank you so much for the questions in the chat box as well. This was a really rich conversation. It was. And thank you to each one of our conference attendees, especially those who shared their thoughts and questions in the chat box. You can catch this recording in a couple of weeks and find others from our podcast at teachstone.com slash impacting. And remember, behind great leading and teaching are powerful interactions. Let's build that culture together. Talk to you guys soon.